Hi, I'm Francis Hellier, and welcome to my podcast, Metaverse. Dedicated to the emerging world of the metaverse, this podcast aims to demystify and unpack the possibilities of the digital future just dawning over the horizon. In each episode, I talk to leaders in this growing space who are forging this new reality. From innovators in AR and VR, to futurists in crypto and space travel, and forecasters in business and tech. Together, we'll ask the question, what's next? Today, I'm joined by Suzanne Borders, co-founder and chief executive of Bad VR. Bad VR is the world's first immersive data visualization and analytics platform, bringing data in high definition, making it easier to discover and identify hidden problems and opportunities, and help businesses make better decisions. The rapidly growing tech startup has attracted industry attention with its pioneering AR and VR demos, allowing people to quite literally step inside their data. Before founding Bad VR in 2018, Suzanne led product and UX design at 2D data analytics companies. She is recipient of Magic Leap's Independent Curators Program grant and a grant from the National Science Foundation. Suzanne is also a published poet and a former punk rocker. She's a big believer in the artistry of technology and the technicality of art. Suzanne, it's fantastic to have you on the show. Welcome to the Metaverse. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. It's quite the intro. Do our best. We do our best. Um, so let's go back to the beginning. Tell us about the inspiration about Bad VR. Yeah. So uh, for a long time prior to founding Bad VR, I actually worked as a product and UX designer. Um, and as you mentioned, at 2D data visualization and analytics companies, specifically companies that worked with uh, geospatial data and also companies that had non-technical end users, which is a little bit unique because most people that work at data analytics companies uh, end up working on products that are geared towards data analysts or data scientists. And that has never really been the case in my life. Um, so throughout the process of working at one company uh, was called Crexy. Uh, the other company is called Remine. Uh, I also worked at a data anal analytics company uh, called OSERV that did survey data, live survey data that was also geospatially tied in and anchored. Throughout that entire process, I was always working with really large data sets um, and having to really find a way to translate those visually and experientially to non-technical people. So, of course, when you're working with geospatial data, it makes total sense to look at it in a geospatial format. Um, so, and of course, like inspired by the idea of like the holodeck, inspired by, you know, ideas like Minority Report for movies, I came up with the idea of, well, you know, instead of just trying to condense all of this data down into these sort of 2D slices on small, you know, phone screens or laptop screens, why don't we, instead of, you know, condensing everything down, why don't we sort of expand it out and use AR and VR technology to look at this data? I really do think it would make the data more accessible. Uh, to non-technical end users. And I also think that we could look at a much larger amount of data. That was the sort of the germ of the idea. Now, when I had that idea, <laughs> the, um, the concept of what VR was, there were no, every headset was tethered to a computer. It was like the very first Oculus dev kit. So I knew, you know, like from just a hardware perspective, it wasn't the right market timing, but the idea was there. And I always sort of kept it in my back pocket and continued onwards with it until I saw the hardware really get to a point where it became as usable as the interfaces that I wanted to design and build for this these types of data sets. Um, and then once that really happened, that's you know when I quit my job and, and founded Bad VR. But that was sort of the original concept, just really working with complex, large geospatial data sets and really thinking it just makes sense to look at this 
multidimensionally because the data itself is multidimensional. It seems like really obvious when you say, say it that way, but um, you know, when I had the idea of it, it really wasn't something that I could find other people doing. There were other sort of immersive data visualization concepts, but they were all, you know, 3D charts and graphs or, you know, three, four dimension, five dimension scatter plots. Nobody was really looking at geospatial data specifically, or at least not that I could find. So that's amazing stuff. And I think that the uh, the holodeck reference definitely uh, makes people make people understand the kind of thing that we're looking at here. Can you describe perhaps a little bit more detail when someone uses this technology? You know, what do they see? Um, what do they feel? What is, what is all around them? Yeah, so the way that we really try to design things is, is start from a sort of a clean slate, as it were, uh, this concept of shoshin, which is really starting, throwing away all the preconceived notions of what data is on two-dimensional screens and really starting afresh and anew from the ground up when designing for multi-dimensional data products. Because while 2D charts and graphs work really great and they're really optimized for small 2D screens, they just don't translate and use the, or really utilize the value that immersive technology can add to looking at data. So basically what you're looking at, we have um, you know a sort of a backend platform that does a lot of the processing. There's a lot of IP in that. That's not what you see though. When you put on a headset, um, for instance, we have a product called C-Signal that you put on the headset allows you to see your entire Wi-Fi, cellular and Bluetooth network in real time uh, overlaid in your real environment. So you're actually looking at the entire network all at one time. You're looking at real data. It's updating as you know things as real time information is gathered and collected in the headset, it's visualized to you. Um, and what you're really seeing are these um, what we call signal sticks sort of placed throughout your environment. And the color of the signal stick represents the strength of, say, for instance, your Wi-Fi network. So if it's green, then you have a strong signal in that area. If it's yellow, it's sort of medium. And then, of course, red is, is not a great signal. And then we have ways that you can bring in Bluetooth, which is a different type of visualization. It's sort of like a, I don't know how to explain it, maybe a 3D topographical map. So you sort of have concentric circles that go out expand or contract depending upon how far the, the Bluetooth network is reaching. Um, and then of course you have a different way that you can layer in uh, the 5G as well. But basically, and there are also like features to it where you can find, you know, triangulate where the source of the network is originating from. Uh, you can go through and, you know, sort of watch as real time traffic goes through these networks. Uh, you have like gadgets that sort of guide you through the room to where the signal is the strongest and where the signal is the weakest. And all of these different features uh, for different use cases, whether that's, you know, depending upon what it is you want to do. Uh, so that's one, it, one example. That's using augmented reality because the holograms are over your real environment. And then we also have VR experiences um, that are a little bit different than that. You're look, Usually for VR experiences, you're looking at either... Um, data that isn't real time in your real environment, or you're looking at data that doesn't have a geospatial tie into it. So you can look at, you know, historical data sets, uh, time series data sets. And in that sort of environment, we have what's called the data stadium. So you're able to sort of sit inside of a huge virtual stadium and see millions of individual data points organized 
you know, in rows and sections, much like it would be in an amphitheater if you were physically located inside of an amphitheater. Uh, you're able to see the macro trends and then also drill down to each individual data point and section and see the micro and the macro at the same time, which is really exciting. We also have, um, you know, real-time geospatial data feeds that can feed into that and build out a whole virtual operation center. You have collaboration, you can bring other people into it, you can annotate things, you can go backwards and forwards in time. We also have ways that you can bring in weather data, so multidimensional weather, uh, historical weather. Um, so just to give you some ideas of what data would look like if it wasn't a 3D charting graph. Very exciting stuff. Now, you received Magic Leap's Independent Creators Program grant and a grant from the National Science Foundation. Can you tell us what that actually meant to you and what difference that made? Oh, yeah, that was huge. I mean, back at that point in time, my business had, you know, it was much smaller than it is now. We didn't have as much traction as we have now. And it was really sort of a tipping point, especially the Magic Leap grant to sort of solidify us and make us sort of sort of real, for lack of a better phrase, I guess. Uh, it just sort of was a signal to the community that we, you know, that the, if this company was large and, and very well staffed and run well, believed in us that we could do this, um, that other people should also believe in us. So, you know, we're always and forever grateful for Magic Leap for taking that sort of first real step of belief um, beyond our pre-seed investors, which also took a huge, you know, jump in faith and believed in us. But um, from a community standpoint, especially within, you know, the immersive community, that was like just a really big signal to people like, hey, these people sort of know what they're doing. Um, we believe in funding them. So you should believe in buying their product or you should believe in funding them or at least give them the time of day, have a conversation with them. Um, yeah, it was um, phenomenal. And then of course, with the NSF, and we uh, received their Sipper Phase One. That's just a huge thing in you know the grant community. Getting a a Sipper from the NSF specifically is very difficult, um, especially because no one on our team really had you know we're not PhDs, we're not MDs, you know we're not like the most um, how should I put it collegiate. We all have degrees, but we don't have advanced degrees. So you know usually for the NSF that's more of a research heavy degree thing. But we you know I think had a great message we had a great you know mission that we're going for and the nsf saw that and really you know believed in our team as well and again it was just like sort of a signal saying hey we're here we're legit like come take a look at us and and believe in us in the way that we believe in ourselves so your background like your, exactly now your background is in psychology what sort of prompted you to make that move from psychology to a career in tech it wasn't really a conscious thing. Um, I've always been interested in psychology. I, I think it's sort of a thing for most people who study psychology. You kind of study psychology because you don't understand yourself or you don't understand other people and you want to. So for me, I've always felt like an outsider. I never really related to a lot of people around me. So I studied psychology because that was, I really just wanted to understand people better. And I wanted to be able to communicate with them better. Um, and initially, I sort of wanted to go into actually like clinical psychology practicing and specifically helping with like, um, developmental uh, teenagers, uh, substance abuse, because it's been something I've been friends with people that have been through that. And I was inspired, like, hey, I want to help. But then as I started studying in school, and I started to see how it, you know, the actual job would work, I was like, yeah, this really isn't for me. Uh, so I sort of once, as soon as I graduated, I was like, I want to go out to California. I had some family out here. I was at the time building like MySpaces and message boards for like local bands, uh, doing like graphic design work for them in Kansas City. 
Um, and I was just sort of playing around, like learning HTML, learning how to code, doing this stuff because I could make some money doing it. Because at the time, this was like, what, 2008, 2009, there weren't too many people that were able to do that and get a website up or get a message board up or, you know, whatever for your band or for your, you know, venue or whatever. And I was big into punk rock. So it was a natural community that I was sort of doing some freelance work for. So when I came out to California, I continued that and I started going to local meetups out here. And I didn't know that there was this thing called UX, UI design. Like to me, I did not know what that meant. I knew that you could make websites. I knew that you could program, but I didn't know about this idea of like designing interfaces to sort of optimize the way that humans cognitively interact with computers. Mm. Once I learned that of that sort of like genre of stuff, I was like, well, that's really amazing because, you know, while I can do very minimal like HTML, build a website type stuff, I am not in any way uh, <laughs> mentally, like I'm not a programmer. I'm not that detail oriented. It drives me crazy. I don't like it. So, but I really enjoyed technology and I really wanted to be in it. So I was like, this is a really good way to fuse my interest in the way of how human brains work, how humans interact with things. And also my interest in technology and how people, you know, create technology and have technology and utilize technology. Um, so yeah, then I started just, you know, getting into that, going to meetups and, you know, just doing, started doing it, started doing freelance design, UX, UI design, and ended up getting a job in the field and, you know, found a couple mentors and took it from there. But, you know, if you would have asked me when I was in school studying psychology, if this is where I wanted to go, I would not have even known what you were talking about because we didn't have that back then and no one really talked about it. It was just either you're a programmer and you're doing like engineering stuff or you're, you know, in the, the psychology medical track and there's no real like, there's no HCI like they have today. They don't, they didn't have that back then where I was. Do you think there's a connection between augmented reality, virtual reality and psychology? What do you think that connection would be? I see AR as sort of an extension of the human mind and a way for people to really remove the barriers to data entry into their mind. So right now, when you're interfacing with a computer, you always have to go through these like small square flat screens. And because of that, there's always a bottleneck, right? Because everything has to be condensed down. And your brain also is set up to work in a three-dimensional world. It has to, you know, sort of rethink. You have to have spend tons of time processing two-dimensional information to get it into your three-dimensional mind. Um, and that just takes a lot of effort. And therefore, because of that, you're always going to have this like slowdown. You're always going to have this bottleneck when it comes to the interface and getting data into your mind. But if you utilize augmented reality, you can spatially ingest data in the same way that, you know, like as I'm sitting here right now, I'm ingesting data about the temperature of this room, the light that's coming out of the window, the color around me, the sounds around me, all of this data ingestion that I'm doing that doesn't you know, take up a lot of cognitive energy in my mind because it's natural, it's three-dimensional, it's, it's, my brain is set up to process information this way. So I think if you can tap into that with augmented reality, you have this huge opportunity to massively increase the amount of data you're able to get into your mind and you're able to enter it without having to really think about it, which is really exciting because that's really also something that always causes issues, you know, besides just having to decode it from 2D 
into, into your 3D mind, you know, it just takes so much time and effort. But if you can just present it in this way, it just everything becomes much easier, much more you know, smooth, easy for people to understand. And of course, because of that, you can increase the amount of data that you're able to get into. And I'm a huge fan of utilizing the subconscious mind as sort of this huge reservoir or database. I think that you can put a lot of information in there and it can do a lot of really cool, fun things, really useful things um, that, and people don't really utilize that as much as they should or they could. And I think augmented reality offers a new way to really utilize that power. Now, Suzanne, you're quite a creative person and you describe yourself in your own words as a big believer in the artistry of technology. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's this idea that people in technology are all like, super engineer types they're like super i don't know i can't remember if left brain is the creative one or whatever but people see technology as like completely separate from art so you have you know like crazy artists on one side and you have you know super duper logical engineers on the other but i really don't think that that's true at all i think that entrepreneurs and creators and builders are more similar to a musician or a painter or a poet than people than people realize. And I think they're much more similar to each other than they are to like say a mid-level manager at a large company. It's really all about taking zero to one, being able to start with nothing and create something brand new. And that's a process that all artists go through, but also all creators, all makers, all builders go through that same process of starting with nothing and creating something. And that process of creation to me is artistry um, and that's creativity. And now whether you're creating, you know, in an engineering sense or whether you're creating with, you know, oil paints or you're creating with pro tools or whatever it is that you're creating with, it doesn't matter, it's still creation. So that's what I mean. You know, I don't really see the difference between the two at all. To me, they're the same thing. I, mean, I think you're bang on. Lots of the conversations we've had at Metaverse are around uh, artistry and creativity as uh, so we're talking about technology but it always keeps coming back to the same the same points that we have tools now at our disposal and the future that we're imagining um, that is very creative. Do you think that the artistry of technology as you describe is prevalent in augmented reality, virtual reality and, and, and the metaverse and why do you think that is? Yeah I mean I think it is definitely. Um, I think that it could be utilized more in specific areas and I'll tell you what I mean by that. I think from an overall perspective you really do have to be an artist, a free thinker, a creative to see opportunities for AR and VR technology to be used in a business setting. I think and even also in a gaming setting you know thinking up new ways to utilize this technology obviously involves creativity and I see a lot of that. There are like so many different workflows. I'm like, oh, wow, I would have never thought to add AR VR technology there, but somebody has, and they've done it in such a way that it's very valuable. So that's definitely, I think, in across, broadly speaking, there's a lot of creativity there. However, a lot of the times when I'm looking at AR products, um, I see a lot of like 2D panels, like let's place a panel here, or let's place a panel there, just from a UX, UI design perspective. And I would love to see the industry get away from stuff like that because that's very focused and centered in a, a 2D pedigree, the concept of a flat screen. And now don't get me wrong, sometimes 
that is the right UI element to use in much the same way that, you know, if you're driving on a highway, there's going to be a flat billboard sometimes, you know, it's, it, it is an inevitability. However, I would love to see from the UX designers in the AR and VR community, I'd love to see a little bit more, you know, uh, creativity and innovation when it comes to what are the new sort of UX UI design standards for this new type of technology, sort of instead of shoehorning in the standard pop-ups, modals, panels, I would love to see something a little bit more creative. I know it's not easy. Trust me, I go through it every day. Like, but you know, like an example of this would be in my own product, uh, C-Signal. We were talking about recently, you know, redoing the onboarding, and we had sort of like some flat panels and go through and you know, one panel, two panel. And for me, I was like, this is just not doing it for me. I really want to try to do this better and and really find ways to utilize the spatial element of this experience. Um, so we ended up, instead of using panels, using audio, and then showing the three-dimensional object in front of the person while using audio to explain to them what they're seeing. So just like trying to throw out what we know and try something new that might be better. So that, so I think yes and no at the same time to answer your question. Your creative hero is Alejandro Jodorowsky. Who is yes. your technology hero? Oh, that's a great question. I really love, I mean, I have a love-hate relationship with Elon Musk. I think he's fantastic. I love a lot of the ways that he has done business. I think that what he's doing is very admirable. I think I love his sense of humor. <laughs> I think he's a really funny, cool guy. Um, but at the same time, there have been, you know, like some things he's done that I don't agree with. Um, you know, some of the comments that he's made about like the guy in the Thai caves, you know, or, you know, stock manipulation, all of that, like, I don't mind 100%, you know, but I guess nobody's ever 100%. I'm not a all in on 100% on Alejandro Jodorowsky either. There are criticisms that I have of him too. But I think from a tech perspective, I, I'm a big fan of Elon Musk. I think he has the right attitude. I think he's got a good sense of humor. I think what he's doing is great for the planet and I'm, I'm a fan. And what are your predictions for augmented reality and virtual reality for the next sort of 10 to 15 years? Yeah, I mean, I think people sort of jumped into AR and VR thinking that, you know, it was going to go to the consumer market first, sort of like smartphones to say, hey, you know, this product, we're just going to start selling games and apps to consumers. And I don't think that AR and VR technology was ready for that. Um, the difference being between a phone and an AR and VR headset, a phone has an inherent use, right? You can always make a phone call. So people were going to buy it because they understood, consumers were going to buy it. They understood that there was an automatic built-in use case, making phone calls, sending text messages. But I think when you start talking about AR and VR technology, people don't, consumers specifically, don't necessarily understand what exactly, okay, it's cool, but like, really, why do I need it? Like, it's cool to play games on it, but I don't understand, like, what am I doing with this that I can't do with the technology that I have right now? So I think that AR and VR technology really needs to understand what that value add use case is to consumers before entering that market. So my point is, I think that we're a couple years away from the consumer market with AR and VR. I think it's really right now just a heavy industry. Enterprise are really, like, primary areas um, for AR and VR with some small, or not small, but some gaming aspects thrown in, in there as well. But if you start talking about, you know, productivity, consumer productivity, people using AR and VR every day, you start talking about the metaverse, people in there for 10 hours a day where they're living their lives in there. I still think that's a ways down the road. Um, but, you know, my business is more, more focused on the enterprise side of things. So maybe of course I'd say that and feel that way. I think that's really where we're at today with it. So what does the future hold for you, Suzanne, and Bad VR? 
Well, I hope wonderful, great things. I, I'm really focused on building up my business and having a product that really defines um, the way that humans and computers and people interact with data moving forward into the future. So we really just want to be, you know, the supreme data interface for the metaverse and the way that people choose to interact with spatial data now and moving forward into the future. So instead of, you know, I don't know, five years from now, people using Excel, I would love for people to just jump into bad VR and do whatever it is that they're doing in there. Um, it's really just trying to build the brand new next generation interface for data and bring that to the masses and just really make data because data is one of those like most valuable asset we have in the world. And most people are not data literate. Most people can't use a Tableau or if they can, it's really hard for them to get insights from it. So I think it is supremely important when we're talking about the future to really be able to allow everybody to have equal access and opportunity to, to the world's data sets. And we would love to be the platform and the product by which people do that. Amazing stuff. You've been listening to Metaverse with me, Francis Hellier. Thank you so much to my guest, Suzanne Borders, for a great conversation. Tweet us at MetaversePod with any suggestions or feedback. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please do share a link on social media. You can sign up to receive an email when every new episode drops at our website, metaverse.fm. Metaverse.